You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Stephen. Hi, I'm Tim. Also known as Eric the Harferbee. Sometimes. Yeah, we are once again the three, well, let's say we are the three Miss Kateers. Once again. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you, you waited, you thought that through for two weeks, didn't you? Well. Between the last one and this one. <laughs> oh. It might have been more in the last 20 minutes, but nevertheless. Oh, is it too late to cancel? <laughs> I was waiting to. <laughs> yes, it's too damn late. Well, look, what happened last time was we sat down to talk about a certain amount of stuff. We. Well, I think what we did last time was we basically discussed the narrative, as it were, but we didn't get down to a lot of the finer details. So this podcast. I mean, we've been more or less decided as we finished last time that we were going to do this, didn't we? Because there was so much stuff left yeah. to cover. So, yeah. So what we're going to do now is basically this will be footnotes to the original podcast. Instead of trying to basically come up with a narrative, although I do have one thing I'd like to bring up at the start, but basically instead of doing a narrative, I'll just, we've got a whole list of things and some emails and we've asked people to email in and private, uh, not private message, post things on our Facebook page and stuff. So we'll just go through a whole list of things and give our reasons for believing or not. So are you two guys ready for that? I am game. Yes, this is going to be a whole load of fun, isn't it? <laughs> right, in order to preface this, I should... There is one thing, and I suppose this one thing is something that might make it a narrative, and that is that none of us knows anything, essentially. We have things that we believe, we have things that we don't believe, we have things that we're inclined to believe because, you know, a certain amount of, you know, circumstantial evidence might point in a direction, or it might point away from a direction, but the fact is, other than that we've got the enemy of the world in the web of fear, there are no facts whatsoever in all of this. Very few facts, I should say. It's all hearsay, conjecture, speculation, and rumour, you know. So, and in spite of the fact that in Doctor Who magazine a few months ago, what was it, six or eight months ago, a representative from BBC Worldwide said... Nothing else has been handed back as yet, so there is nothing else to say. In spite of that, the BBC is, as we mentioned last time, a huge organisation with not just different departments, but different businesses operating within it. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't rule out 100% somebody from BBC Worldwide, somebody from the top of BBC Worldwide, being able to go on the record and say... Nothing has been handed back yet, to the best of my knowledge. And yet somewhere else within the BBC, somebody busily beavering away at something that has been handed back. Now, I don't believe 
that's the case, but I think it's impossible to 100% rule that out. Uh, what do you two guys think of that? What was the wording on the, there was a, a BBC denial when, when Enemy and Web were handed back, wasn't there? Something along the lines of, um, there are always rumours about missing episodes, and we hope these ones are, are, I can't remember what the wording was, but that sort of demonstrates... I remember what you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, I can't remember the oh, exact no, no, wording. I, I remember what you're talking about, though, and... Yeah, I completely agree. It's one of those things, you know. People make a lot of uh, people make a lot of a fuss about the fact that Phil Morris said on his Tia Facebook page just a few months before the episodes were announced, but after he'd handed them back, they are missing, destroyed, the end, etc. Yeah. You know, we're in. We've moved into a completely different area now. He was saying that then, in order to try and disguise the fact that there was an announcement on the way and to keep it quiet so that it'd be a nice surprise for people, <coughs> that was an obvious lie. Since then, I don't think anybody, least of all Phil, has said there is nothing else that will be handed back. But like I say, insofar as everybody is saying nothing else has been handed back yet, but Stephen, your opinion on you know. The fact that I said it's impossible to be a hundred percent sure about that. Well, it is. I mean, uh, you know, we say that the BBC is a big corporation, and and that's how uh, you know things work there. That could just go for any sort of um, corporation at all, or even any business. You know, sometimes I walk into the lunchroom of my own little small place of work, and like, I don't even know who this person is or what that person does. You know, uh, so for. For the, you know, spokesperson of BBC Worldwide or the BBC to not know absolutely everything that's going on, you know, behind the scenes somewhere else in the in the operation is not at all surprising. You know, it's not like they get daily memo reports on what's happening or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, quite. So, I mean, and that's not to say that, you know, for certain something is happening if they don't necessarily know what's going on. I'm just saying that if if something was going on at the BBC in regards to missing episodes being remastered or prepared for release or something like that, it wouldn't necessarily be the knowledge of everyone in the entire corporation to know about it. No, exactly, precisely. But having said that, I yeah. have, you know, had testimony from lots of people who either worked on or were involved in the announcement and the recovery of the episodes last time, and who have all to a man denied that anything is happening and anything's been handed back privately. And I have to say, I would tend to believe those people, you know. I put absolute stock in what those people would say privately. But, on the other hand, we wouldn't have much of a podcast if we didn't discuss these possibilities, seeing as basically that's what these footnotes are made of. Tim, anything else to add before we get into specifics? Um, no, I don't, I, I don't believe that anything has been handed over yet. Um, I think one of the unfortunate things of uh, the whole Omni rumor is that people who have been involved or are associated with have made denials in the public domain and perhaps still denied it privately, but perhaps given a bit more context. And, yeah. Um, <laughs> or they've, they've done... You know, lies at the eleventh hour. You know, the uh, the Steve Roberts, the BBC computer is still showing um, yeah, six yeah. missing episodes, that sort of thing. And so, we've got so little to go on that once someone has 
lied, if you like, or told a fib, or or protected the secret that there is an assumption made that everybody could be lying at any time. Um, but the thing that the thing that sort of made it all seem not as we might wish is when um, I was talking to one guy privately and he said, no, nothing's happening. And he started getting quite passionate about it um, and started being um, not indiscreet, but, you know, he started coming across very openly saying nothing's happening. Quite, yeah. And, Almost and, to the uh, point where you started to think, hang on, is he protesting too much, you mean? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I do wonder, yeah. I, I do wonder whether, when and if, and if that be now or at some point in the future, the same thing happens again, we're just going to be going through the same thing again, you know what I mean? Whereby... Yeah. Anything that happens in public or in private might just be a case sometimes of the protest being just a little too much. But, you know, that's speculation on our behalf. Until it actually happens, you know, until the announcement is nailed in and, you know, scheduled to happen. And we all knew a few days before last time because, you know, the hotel was booked and people had been invited and everything else. We knew a few days before what was happening, that it was happening. Until we get to that same position again, if we get to that same position again, it's just a case of personal judgment on all of these things, isn't it? Well, I think I think the problem next time we'll have is that anyone who was posting on the forums in a position to know this stuff, or posting in public or on Twitter or whatever, they just won't bother now, because every single person has yeah. been run through the mill, been dragged through the mud, um, mm. And you know why would they bother? And I think I think that's uh, I I don't know. I'm not attributing blame at all. I just think that's where we are, and I just think it's a shame for moving forward that no one can quickly come and debunk something because people will now go, ah, oh, well, you said this last time. Um, do you know what I mean? I think it's just one of the one of the yeah. Things that, um, I think yeah, that, it's and it's one of those things. I was just going to say, it's one of those things that couldn't be helped, because if you are trying to protect a secret, what are you going to do? You can't shut up, because if people have asked you directly, you know, has the web of fear been found? You know, I've heard the web of fear has been found, either, you know, admit it or deny it. That uh, If you don't answer at all, people are going to take yeah. that as an admission. And yet, if you deny it, people are then going to later on say, well, you denied it last time, and so you're denying it now. You know, people were in impossible positions. And I suppose the one thing I'd like to bring up, therefore, that would be on our list is NDAs. Now, whether any or all of them are on NDAs, Dan Hall admitted to being on an NDA last time, didn't he? He did. Yeah, yeah. I was about to bring that up. He said so on uh, on a DVD panel at Chicago Tardis that I moderated with him and, and Ed Stradling. That's right. Where yeah. he talked about the whole the whole process of of uh, Web of Fear and everything, getting and yeah, and the, 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 like the, he, the sum of money was toilet, astounding Stephen. too, like in the millions. Yeah, it was him hiding in a toilet basically because he didn't he didn't want someone else. I can't remember who he, who he said it was, but he didn't want someone else there to know that he knew what he knew. It was just you know you can imagine the amount of secrecy going on. Uh, around this same time, and and to a to a them, the thing that you were saying, Jr., is that uh, about people denying or not denying or staying silent. It's that sometimes these people have been, you know, in the past, 
like denying the, all the crazy rumors and they're just tired of it and they just don't I like we've I've already said no this probably isn't happening I'm tired of answering this I'm not even going to answer anymore and yeah. so people are taking that that you know that silence as confirmation of things which is ludicrous they're just tired of dealing with you that's that's the only mm. thing they're confirming well this has been happening for three years now so you know <laughs> i know in the you know? in the public eye i mean or well well over two years in the public eye so there's only so much denying you can do before you just get fed up with it the thing about ndas i suppose is that w- whether ndas are in play currently or not which they may well or well not be they wouldn't need to cover any everybody anyway, because some people. I don't know. For instance, last time I think I think Steve Roberts said he wasn't covered by an actual NDA last time, but he just wouldn't no. admit it anyway because you know it's just not the kind of thing he'd do. Is turn around and say, "Hey, these other guys are covered by an NDA, but I'm not, so I'm going to reveal everything." It's you know whether it's an actual written NDA on a piece of paper or a gentleman's agreement between the people involved, if there's some decision been made that nothing is going to be owned up to until such time as the BBC, whose province it is, of course, makes the announcement, then nobody is going to break ranks and do it, whether they're actually covered by an NDA or not. Exactly. And especially, you know, the the people who worked on... Web and Enemy were such a tight little circle of, of people anyway that I don't think they would... Why why would they go out of their way to sort of reveal what they're working on, all four of them, you know? It just it didn't make sense at the time. There's no point. Yeah, quite. Tim, anything to add to that? Or shall I get on with some other stuff? Get on add with some other stuff. <laughs> okay. Right, we've had a bunch of... We've had a bunch of emails and lots of shorter suggestions for things to talk about. So I think what I'll do is I'll start off with a couple of emails and then we'll move into the suggestions because I think the suggestions are the bits that anybody listening are probably waiting for. But Dylan Reese said, Hi, JR and Co. Just wanted to drop you a line to say thanks for your recent Missing Episodes podcast. It was great to hear people talk about the issue rationally. I am, of course, massively hopeful that Mr. Morris has located more episodes. However, trying to keep up with the rumours and sift through all the bile on the forums is a difficult task, so I tend to just steer clear and hope there is more returned. If there is more to come, then I'm happy to wait to see them, and if there isn't, then let's just be thankful that we got Webb and Enemy back. I have quick questions for the Blue Box team, if you will permit me. Should Mr. Morris return the majority of missing episodes, which stories will undergo the biggest re-evaluation? Will the Faceless Ones be a hidden gem, while Evil of the Daleks turns out to be a lot of padding before reaching a badly realised final end? Will the Smugglers trounce all over Marco Polo for the title of Best Historical? And surely the Space Pirate's reputation can only improve. Keep up the good work. All the best, Dylan. Go on, guys. Quickly, before we move on to more specific things, are there any stories that either of you two... We'll go, Tim, we'll go with you first. Are there any stories that you think, should they turn up, a poor reputation will turn into a good one or vice versa? Hmm. Well, in my mind, the Mythmakers can't possibly be as good as it would be. So I think that, that would have to slip for me. I have... um a multi-billion pound budget in my mind when I listen to the Myth Makers, so that that will have to take <laughs> oh, a really? hit. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of improving uh, poor reputation, I think um, I don't think the Space Pirates can really improve because we've got one fifth of awfulness already, so it can only sort of get five times worse. 
Um, or six times worse. Yeah. Uh, ooh, well, again, I'm not a fan of the wheel in space, but I think um, I think if we saw episode well, so... one of that, I think that's got potential to lift it a little bit, um, and the rest of it might do. So, yeah, I, I think the wheel in space has a good reputation, but I'm not a fan. But it can only really improve for me. How about you then, Stephen? I think uh, I think some of the um, the stuff that has a lot of filming in it. I think the the parts of Enemy of the World that surprised me is how much of uh, stuff is on film in Episode One and, and how great it looked. And I think stuff like um, um, the Abominable Snowmen and the Smugglers. I bet because the Smugglers had like a five day location shoot because it was at the end of a production block. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love to see what that looks like because we just sort of see it as this creaky old, you know, pirate story set inside of a BBC studio. But they went out to Cornwall for five days to shoot that. I think that would be really intriguing to see what that would look like. And also, um, I think anything that doesn't have any telesnaps, so basically the John Wiles era of uh, of, the, of Doctor Who, where we have no visual record whatsoever, I think the massacre will be most intriguing to see. I say Will Wood. <laughs> um, because we have no visual indication. Marco Polo, of course, but we have some ind- indication of what, what Doctor Who was like at the time. Yeah. Uh, we've seen this, you know, we've seen the, the costumes and the sets in color from the Radio Time shoot. So I don't know if that one will be as, would be <laughs> as lauded. Keeps talking in the present tense. Um, <laughs> uh, I, honestly, I think the Macra Terror would, uh, would get a large amount of, um, revision of, revisionism, I think, because I think that's an underrated story. I think that would be, uh, be up there. I have to agree about the smugglers. I think that's one of those stories that might prove to be a pretty enjoyable little gem. Of the kind, you know, of the kind that doesn't break any boundaries or do any of the big things, but that actually would turn out to be four episodes that you can just sink into and really enjoy. Possibly. You know, the one that I think, (laughs) the one that I think might not live up to its reputation is maybe Fury from the Deep, because although there's a fair amount of location stuff in that, there is an awful lot in Fury from the Deep that is just well, like the Ice Warriors, people wandering around around one particular set and a few other small corridor sets. And I can imagine, you know, there'll be huge parts of Fury from the Deep that are just faces in corridors. Um, Do you know what I mean? You, you know, isn't yeah. I'm, I'll, I'll probably get hate mail, but Fury from the Deep has never done it for me. It's never yeah. grabbed me as something that, I mean, I respect totally everyone's desire to watch it who think it's going to be a real... Um, a real page turner or whatever, but I, it's never. I've read the book, I've listened to it, and it's never really done it for me. So I suppose that could only improve for me. Okay, um, David Kitchen from Australia. <clears throat> uh, normally, when I do Australian emails, I attempt an Australian accent. <laughs> oh God, Stephen knows. <laughs> you, is that going to be your catchphrase for the night? <clears throat> Okay, I'm not going to do it this time. Hi, JR. (laughs) Enjoyable conversation last episode and looking forward to part two. A couple of thoughts and questions from me. First, overriding everything, I think it is so important to stress that whatever the situation, Phil Morris has returned nine missing episodes already. So when people online throw around terms such as hoarder or troll, they really are missing the point. 
Your explanation as to why there might be a two-year-plus delay between releases was the most credible I've heard yet. However, as a business, wouldn't a preferred funding model be to monetize anything found during one expedition in order to fund future expeditions? Or is Phil Morris willing to put the whole search on the credit card, as it were, and hope for a large payday at the end? Also, I'm very wary of the where there's smoke there's fire argument. In Melbourne alone in 2013, there were at least a couple of occasions when we thought we'd heard the same rumour from three, four or five sources and started to give it credibility because of that. However, on pushing back, we discovered that all the sources had the same original source, so the smoke was really only one-fifth the size we thought it was. Finally, your thoughts on my golden rule that any rumour which claims to include power or evil of the Daleks and Affine should be dismissed, given the significant lack of countries they were sold to. Looking forward to the discussion. Regards, David Kitchen, Melbourne, Australia. And on that last point about any rumour which claims to include power or evil of the Daleks being bunkum given how few countries they were sold to, I think the answer is, if they were sold anywhere at all, there is a possibility, no matter how tiny, that they may still exist. So I don't think we can rule out anything. Uh, do you both agree? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, how many, you know, how many copies of Web of Fear uh, were around? I'm, I don't know the numbers offhand or Enemy of the World or anything like that. I mean, exactly. If it existed once, it can still exist now. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah. On the subject of funding and you know phil morris putting this all on the credit card as he puts it we know that at some point phil morris had a payout from the oil company he was working for after the kidnapping <coughs> incident we've no idea how much that was we've no idea how much this has actually been costing him but you know it's obviously costing well, a lot and he's not you know working for any other company and getting paid in the meantime is it right? We, this is something we don't know one way or the other, and I th assume that we all probably believe that because he did this all off his own bat, there probably hasn't been. But I mean, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that either the BBC or the BFI have put some money into the search to keep it going, and possibly one of the results of Enemy and Web being released a couple of years ago is that any money that that made was able to be ploughed back into the search as well in order to keep it going. It could be that we got to a position a couple of years ago where Phil was out of money and out of options and the release of those two stories got it all started up again. Uh, Tim, since we just heard from Stephen, what do you think? Is this... Is Tim... Is Tim... Is Phil perhaps the kind of person who, as long as he still does have the money to keep going wouldn't be too worried about whether money might come in afterwards. He's just the kind of person who's likely to keep going. Do you think, or do you think money is more of an issue than that? I have no idea, in short. I think I've been surprised by, um, <laughs> in his interviews, um, <laughs> I've been surprised in his interviews about how passionately he has talked about... Um, the people who he has worked with. There's been some photos around, haven't there, of beaming faces. He's talked about uh, the hard work and dedication of people in Ethiopia and India. And I get a sense that he's got his eye on the sort of mission, if you like. Now, that, to me, says he's not particularly financially driven. 
Um, yeah. And, and as we discussed last week, I think if if you try and worked out his expenses bill, I just think it would vastly outweigh anything he would get for missing material. So uh, I don't know the man. I don't know what the arrangements are. I don't know what the BBC or BFI's capability of throwing money at something are, um, particularly the BBC with their charter. Um, so in short, I don't know. <laughs> Stephen, what do you think? <laughs> well, I mean... This isn't an, an end-all, be-all for for everything that Phil Morris has put in these things financially. But uh, you can go on any website and and check out the um, the ins and outs of uh, of each corporation, and you can find Television International Enterprises archives. You can see that apart from uh, five hundred pounds in 2011, 2012, from March thirty-first to thirty-first, uh, he TIA TIA got 500 pounds then and has consistently paid out between like 15 to 23,000 pounds a year without getting a single uh, cent in return. I was, just to cut you in a minute, I'm assuming yeah. that that's probably that if he's traveling around as much as we think he is, that's probably the kind of money we'd be talking for airfares and hotels and stuff. Somewhere I in would the think so. Park, yeah. yeah, stuff certainly that... that um, you know, and I think we talked about this last week about about you know having a corporate entity that can be paid back to, so that there's a sort of a paper trail as opposed to just sort of you know some guy from Wigan flying around to give me money that yeah. sort of thing. There's 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 actual record of this money. So yeah, I think it could be that. Uh, it you know, I don't know if it's shipping costs or anything like that or staff perhaps. I mean, some of these people that he I mean he does have people on staff, be it permanent or or occasional. Yeah. I think he himself has said or or uh Joanne Morris has even said that they have like, you know, twelve or twenty four people on staff at any one time doing research or work around the world. So there's that to consider as well. But yeah, I, I think it's quite clear he's just he's fronting this with his own cash and and, and not really because mm. um, I can't see what how else Tia would make any money um, well, obviously we can see it because it's not making any money. It's basically a non-profit organization. The thing, the only thing I'd add to that is when I spoke to him in person, and obviously before the interview, we talked for a fairly considerable amount of time as well off the record about all the same things we talked about. And since the interview, I've spoken to him off and on quite a bit via, you know, email and private message him. And he's never, ever given me the impression that anything other than the safety and well-being of the episodes, for the greater good, as it were, you know, it seems to me that it's far more important to him that if he can find things and get them back where they belong, as it were, that outweighs any sort of personal or financial considerations. But on the other hand, you know, it's worth pointing out, as I think we did last time, that he's not going to do this absolutely out of charity. <clears throat> you know, if there's money to be made back and he can make that money back, he is going to expect to be paid for this, you know, as and when that comes up. But the question was, is he the kind of person who would be liable to say, right, if my plan is not to hand anything back till I'm absolutely sure I've got everything there is to get? I don't think money is going to be the thing that changes his mind on that. No, nor me. That um, that that figure you quoted, Stephen, is is not a lot of money at all, is it? 
Um, it, it doesn't pay any salaries. It might pay for some travel. It might pay for equipment uh, mm-hmm. that he ships out to uh, wherever, Zambia or whatever. Um, but that's not a lot of money at all. So no. it, it just it just screams at me that he, he is paying for a hell of a lot of this out of his own pocket. Oh, completely. Certainly not growing yeah. a salary. Right, I've got a, a couple more in emails. I've got one from Kieran Hyman that's got some very interesting points in it. So I think we'll come back to that in a little while. And I've got one from Sharak Jizz that we may or may not get to, depending on whether we have time. <laughs> uh, right. But, okay, some of the... Right, some of the things we missed out last time and that we definitely need to talk about this time. Okay, here's one. I'm going to throw this one out to you, Stephen. The BBC Store. Yeah. <laughs> I think within 20 seconds of us stopping recording last time, I looked on my list and go, we never mentioned that BBC Worldwide tweet, did we? Um, which <laughs> was <laughs> odd, considering that was one of the things that prompted me <laughs> to want to talk about this stuff and we completely missed it. Um which was dated June 26th, and this was maybe a couple days after the the news in Doctor Who magazine broke that Underwater Menace DVD had been cancelled. It was pretty much the same so, day, wasn't it? It was very close. I think it was the ne- literally the next day, and yeah. it was on the Friday. And and everyone was going back and forth. Well, how could they cancel it? This thing has been missing. You know, it's all the stuff's been made, and like it's just basically sitting in a can. Apart from, of course, the audio restoration, which Steve Roberts uh, uh, made mention of in February, and you know. I'm not sure how many, if a lot of people like tweeted the BBC Worldwide press account about this or what, but a very curious um, tweet came out on June 26th. It just said this, we're hoping to release more classic Doctor Who and we'll let you know when we have news. And, you know, that you could read into that a lot of ways because uh, this week more details about the um, the BBC store came out. Uh, and an, I saw I saw an article in, in the Independent. I'm sure it was probably elsewhere as well. That uh, oh, before you notable. before you get yeah. into that, let's just point out it. in that tweet uh-huh. it does not yeah. specify DVD or you know to download. It doesn't even yes. specify that they're actually talking about the television program. So you know, bearing that in mind, that it doesn't mention DVD. Carry on. Yeah, and more classic Doctor Who as well. Like, how much more classic Doctor Who is there? There is precisely one more episode of classic Doctor Who that has not been officially released. Um, I just thought it was a very curious and hastily worded tweet that just seemed to be a knee-jerk reaction. Um, I, I found it very puzzling. I still find it puzzling. And they never deleted it. It's still out there. You know, I thought perhaps, like, oh, I better take a screenshot of this on my iPhone just so I have it on record that it was said. But it's still there. Yeah. Um, what I was mentioning is that, and this is this is curious, and, the, and I'm sure this is already spreading rumors and speculation like wildfire, but uh, the, the quote in the, in the Independent article says, uh, the store, the BBC store, currently undergoing beta testing, will offer an initial catalog of around 10,000 hours of content to purchasers in the UK. Shows from the BBC archives, some of which have never had a commercial release before, will be available to buy. Um, that that does nothing but fuel speculation of what kind of stuff this might be. Because how much stuff that's in the BBC archives that exists now that we know of has not actually seen release? I mean, are, do we get to buy, like, BBC, you know, the News at Nine broadcast from 1978 or something? Is that finally going to be made available to us? Or is this something much more interesting and tantalizing? 
Well, the truth is there are so many hours of programming. That's really not a huge amount of hours, is it? Mm. Probably not, no. And when you look at the the numbers, when they say, what, 6,000 hours of modern programming and 4,000 hours of archive programming, when you consider that modern programming probably means the last five or ten years and archive programming probably means, you know, the 40 or 50 years before that, we're talking just a tiny fraction of what they've made, really. So I think people are, I think this is another case when people are obsessing about how big the numbers look, when actually, just yeah. just like those figures on the um, tier thing that you were talking about a minute ago, when actually the numbers really aren't that big at all. Um, it, here's what I think. I think that as and when the BBC store goes live, whether they have more missing episodes returned by that point or not, they're not going to open the BBC store with, you know, new missing <laughs> Doctor Who episodes recovered. Yeah. For one reason, if nothing else, that one of the um, one of the uh, things that the government laid down about the BBC being allowed to open their own store to compete with like with the likes of iTunes and Netflix and so on was that they had to make all of the content available to all the other providers. You know, in much the same way, you won't understand this, Stephen, but Tim will, in much the same way as uh, British Gas have to allow other energy providers to use, you know, British Gas pipes to pipe their gas through, yeah. as it were. It, that's not quite how it works, but that is, in essence, how uh, the privatisation of all these public facilities works, and it's the same with the BBC. If the BBC had, for random example, the Smugglers and the Massacre, ready to go live on the BBC store on its opening night, then also Netflix and iTunes and all these other platforms would have to have their own files, digital files, of those stories ready to go live as well. And that is just, if you're trying to keep an announcement a secret, that is way too much of a secret to keep. You know, given the amount of people who would have access to that information, it only takes one person who works for iTunes, you know, and plenty of people do, to see, oh, Doctor Who the Massacre written down on a list. And, you know, even if they don't tweet it to the general public as a whole, they'll tell a mate, they'll tell a mate, and it would get out. Hmm. So, you know, that's not going to happen. Hmm. Well, I mean, when Web and Enemy, Enemy came out, they only came out on iTunes. They weren't available on anywhere else. Yeah. Um, they weren't on the Xbox store or wherever else you can buy these things. So I'm not too sure if, if the BBC has to provide files to everywhere, if they can't have any exclusive property, then I'm not too sure what the whole point of the store is. If you can get it anywhere else, what's the point of buying it off the store? I think there has to be some sort of... Uh, um, uh, well, some sort of exclusivity they have, don't they, or no? But you could say that same thing about the BBC's shop where you can buy DVDs of all these things. It's just a case. Right. It's just a case of yeah. it will cost the BBC less to put these things out themselves, and so the profit margin will be bigger, and so they'll be making more money off them than they would get by selling them to iTunes to put out and what have you. Mm -hmm. It's just a case of the BBC in these, you know, in these belt tightening times finding further ways to try and make money there was talk as well about something called bbc studios opening up wasn't there where the bbc yeah. would actually be making programs for other people in the same way as since the government 
back in the late 80s and this is what sort of helped to end Doctor Who in the first place, if we all remember back to then. But in much the same way as the government of the late 1980s said other people must be allowed to make programming for the BBC, now the BBC are turning around and say, right, so we're going to make programming for other people as long as it brings in more revenue streams. I think that's what it's all about, revenue streams. There's a case for saying, I suppose, that if the massacre was ready to go out, it might go out on the BBC store first and go to somewhere like iTunes or something like that a day or a few days later. But I'm not entirely sure that that would be how it would be able to be run. And I certainly don't think that the launch of the BBC store has anything to do with it. I think the BBC store is going to, if there is going to be more episodes, further episodes handed back, I think the BBC store is like a cherry on the cake but i don't think the bbc store is the cake itself no i'm i have to admit i'm surprised that they even mentioned that there would be stuff from the archives itself you know i i've often thought that they won't like you just said bear that won't like it won't be used as the main selling point hey get 50 year old television here on a brand new digital bbc store but I'm I'm surprised that they actually included that in, in one of the selling points of it, though. You know, I would just assume you can get like all the you know get your top last season of Top Gear on BBC Store, get uh, yeah. get uh, get episodes as they come out of of Series Nine of Doctor Who on the BBC Store. You know, as opposed to waiting for the box set or something like that. I mean, I was sort of expecting that, but the fact that they actually mentioned the stuff from the archives is uh, is intriguing to me. Well, over here in I mean, Tim, over here in great britain in the united kingdom mm. there is kind of a thing about i mean you probably don't see this much as uh, abroad but if you walk into any supermarket in the country you will find things like open all hours and dad's army dvds in yeah the... co constantly rehashed yeah, yeah it, constantly repackaged there is a there's quite a big <laughs> thing particularly with comedy but not exclusively with comedy about mm. britain having this big cultural heritage thanks to the bbc that you know the british public will probably in some ways never grow tired of and i think that's reason why they brought up the sort of archive nature of what is going to end up on the bbc store because there are a lot of programs like that you know, um, I don't know, it ain't off hot mum to give come up with some random example that people fondly remember that perhaps aren't fondly remembered enough to have made it the BBC's worthwhile of the BBC to put them on DVD necessarily, but things like that that may end up on the BBC store so that people can access them that people have maybe been thinking, why has that never turned up for the last 20 years on DVD? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, and um, as as great and expansive as Netflix can be in in certain parts of the world, I don't, the UK is 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 a distant third in regards to stuff that's actually available on it. But mm. it's not necessarily the best place for a lot of archive television. You know, that you know, Star Trek and series like that are shot on film and and were sort of remastered for for Blu-ray. Blu-ray, I think, anyway. Yeah. So. It's it it's an easier step to go from that to a Netflix service when people are sort of paying for that that kind of quality. So BBC Store will be, I suppose, the only place for some of the older stuff that that just can't get sold to any uh, TV stations or streaming services these days. Right, Tim, I've got a well. Mark from the Forty Two to Doomsday podcast has written in with a few points, and they are 
in large part to do with the forums. And as you're my forum friend on this podcast, <laughs> I think a little discussion with you about these might be in order, mm-hmm. mainly because I don't want to get me or Stephen in trouble. But as the sort of the newbie on the podcast, I don't really care whether you get in trouble or not. <laughs> you don't care. <laughs> no. Throw him under the bus, yeah. Uh, Throw him under. <laughs> all right. Mark says, okay, he says, it'd be interesting to hear what the panel thinks about A... The impact the so the so-called source kings had on fandom with their dissemination, stroke peddling of rumors. B whether the source kings were being played in any way, and C what impact the bleeding cool articles had in mid twenty thirteen on Phil Morris and the search. I think we can split C off about bleeding cool and talk about that separately. But the source kings, Tim, do you think? I, I suppose the point that Mark's making here is that the people who were peddling the rumours on the forums, have they had a big impact on our expectations of and opinions of the people who are actually involved in finding, uh, restoring and making this stuff available? Have we come to have we come to regard some of what the Source Kings have had to say as more important than any value it actually has? Well, I think the more interesting question, because I have read all of this stuff, is maybe, and not to dodge the bullet, but maybe to Stephen. Personally, I don't think it has. Um, it hasn't had any effect on my expectation, really, apart from maybe in about November 2013. Um, but then it all very quickly uh, became clearly wrong. Not just, well, plans change wrong, but just clearly wrong. Things were were said that would happen that have happened and they haven't so yeah. i'm i'm quite comfortable just abandoning it um and that's not a personal attack on these guys um i've spoken to one quite a lot and he's a he's a lovely fella um but i just think his information is wrong and the science that is, that is employed in in finding out what might be going on is wrong but it, it's a, interesting. I'd be interested to know what Stephen thinks about that and how that's impacted him. Because... Well, hang on. We'll come back to Stephen in a second because what you're just saying, okay, yeah. Mark's second point, were the Source Kings being played? Because uh, going back to what David Kitchen was saying about, you know, he'd heard five rumours from different people mm. which seemed to add up to something that was probably true, then realised that those five people had all heard it from the same person in the first place. We, I mean, one of the things that, without naming any names, one of the things that we became aware of when we first started talking about this stuff was that a lot of the rumours seemed to be coming from a particular person, who we won't name, who wasn't the person on the forums spreading the rumours, but was obviously in some way, you know, spreading particular facets and particular nuggets out mm. to a certain amount of people which then had a kind of echo chamber effect, so that by the time they got back to the person who was posting it on the forums, he kind of thought he had a bunch of different sources about something when actually it all come from this same person. Now, without naming the person or without saying, Mm. without going too much into the psychology of why he may or may not have done it, was he playing around, do you think? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think so. I don't think he had any um, sort of malevolent intent. I think if you start off with a fundamental belief that 90 episodes have been found, then you are going to adapt every single piece of thing that you hear 
to believe that that somehow fits in. Do you know what I mean? Confirmation bias, in other Confirmation words. Confirmation bias, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I don't think so. I just think people are on the uh, are going down the wrong track, and I've been very guilty of it. I've I've had things which I've believed to be true, um, and you know, after a period of time, you find out they're not true, and and it sort of rejigs how you assess things. Yeah. So I don't think there's been any malevolence. I think there might have been some minor, minor instances of people trying to catch uh, people out and then making them repeat it on the forum and going, ha, 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 I told them that and it was rubbish. But I, I don't... Yeah, think yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't think... Well, I'll put it another way. These rumours got everywhere. And I don't think it's uh, the fault of people further down the chain to have bought this stuff if it indeed it's not true. Because everyone was saying crazy numbers. Everyone. Yeah. But um, well, what about right back up at the start of the chain, though? Mm. I mean, one the, the one thing that I'm thinking is this particular person, who I'm not going to name because, you know, I'm not looking to start a witch hunt or whatever, and most mm. of the people listening who are on the forums will know exactly who and what I'm talking about. Any malevolent intent there? Or, you know, I have an alternative suggestion, but shall I just say what my alternative thought is? Go for it. Because this impacts on quite a few other things that we are going to talk about in, you know, 15 or 20 minutes. I think that if the whole of fandom has kind of uh, sort of made itself believe, somehow magicked itself into believing that 90 episodes are on the way back, and like you say, th- there were massive emails passing around between people before it even sort of landed on the forums that this was happening. And people were, you know, fandom was, fandom was uh, completely in the belief that by the end of 2013 or sh- shortly thereafter, we would have a near complete Doctor Who archive. Now here's, here's my suggestion. I think there's a case somewhere along the line that somebody might think to themselves, oh, Power of the Daleks is definitely going to be returned within the next six months or so. If you believe 100% that the Power of the Daleks is going to be returned, and I'm talking a 100% belief, you don't think there's any room for doubt whatsoever, because this is what people were believing, that these things were coming then you're going to think, what's the harm in telling people that I've seen it? Because I'm never going to be found out. Because in six months' time, everybody will have seen it. So I will look, I will look like somebody who's connected, somebody whose boots are slightly bigger than they actually are, if I start Mm. telling people that I've actually seen Power of the Daleks, even though I actually haven't. We talk about, you know, whether the screening may or may not have taken place, you know, because that's one of the rumours that's, you know, we have to bring up. But you know what I mean? From the point Mm. of view of somebody who 100% believes that things are on their way, it's very easy, therefore, to kind of make things up in the knowledge, as you think, that you'll never, ever be found out because, you know, it's not going to be long before they do turn up. Do you think... That is the case because, you know, we're talking about human beings and human beings, uh, you know, six, seven billion of us, we're all different. We all have the things that make us work that are different from the things that makes everybody else work. And it's not necessarily down to sort of 
evilness or whatever that you might lie about something like that it might just be a sort of self validation or you know that kind of thing just to try mm. and make people think that you're slightly more important than you really are what do you think um maybe not uh, i don't know uh, in that particular for instance you've given yeah. people who have been saying <laughs> that or are reported to have been saying that power of the daleks has been found don't need to add to their uh, their reputation, if you know what I mean. Oh, no, no, I'm not talking about those people. I'm talking about in-between people. I'm talking about maybe somebody who's uh, right on the very edges of the upper echelons of fandom. Well, there's, one guy, there's, yeah. there's one guy who was on the forums yesterday who was saying, well, I thought I'd seen a clip of Marco Polo, but I might hmm. be mistaken. <laughs> Whereas I'm not laughing at the guy. What he said was he might have been. I can't remember the exact context, but he, yeah, said he yeah, saw yeah. a three or four second clip. And at the time, because he was fueled by the belief that Marco Polo was found, um, he's pretty sure that it was. But as it's not turned up, was someone playing him? Did someone throw together this three, four second clip? Yeah. Now um, the doubts have taken hold. Yeah. So I, I think that might be a a more likely. Um, explanation. Um, but I think there is mileage in saying that once someone says something, who they are um, adds veracity and confirmation bias, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. So if, if that one person got the wrong end of the stick, then that might be responsible for some of this, but who knows? Absolutely, yeah. Because, you know, let's take a completely stupid example. Let us say that, oh, I don't know. Okay. We'll take an example like this. Let us say that Robert Holmes was still with us. And <laughs> yeah, because I don't want to, I don't want to name. <laughs> Is it too late to cancel? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to name somebody who's actually alive because, you know, I don't want to color the point by, you know, perhaps making out that somebody's necessarily you know what I mean here. Yeah. If Robert Holmes was still with us and somebody had shown Robert Holmes a five second clip that was ostensibly of Marco Polo, may have been from Marco Polo, may have been from the loose cannon recon of Marco Polo. All it is is two seconds of William Hartnell in the TARDIS console room and then some caravans moving across the desert for three seconds afterwards. The caravans moving across the desert may have been taken from a movie that may have then had the colour washed out into black and white and been put into 4 by 3 given a little bit of, you know, wrinkles and, you know, uh, sort of filmized, as it were, to make it look like it had come from a, a copy of Marco Polo that had just been found down the back of somebody's shed in eastern Ethiopia or somewhere. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take very much to convince somebody that they've just seen five seconds of Marco Polo when they haven't. But if Robert Holmes turns around and says to somebody, I've seen five seconds of Marco Polo, anybody who says that to is going to think, that's Robert Holmes saying that. He has seen five seconds of Marco Polo. Whereas, as you so rightly say, Tim, <laughs> it could just so easily have been that he's seen five seconds of a recon. It's the name that sort of gives the news, you know, the rumour veracity rather than, you know, the actual credibility of the rumour itself. Anyway, you were about to ask Stephen his opinion on what you were talking about a few minutes ago. Oh, before we do, JR. Go on, yeah. I've, there's a very good case in point here. Um, yeah. That we know something about, or rather I know something about. Oh, go on um, then, yeah. 
it's comparing something in the public domain with something that was a rumor that I've heard and I don't know who else has. So on in um, at some point on the forums, Paul Venezzi said, um, I've no idea where 90 came from, but this 40 odd rumor mutated from a list which I handed to um, Cardiff uh, around the time of the Underwater Menace. Yeah. And I wrote. Hmm. At the Underwater Menace screening, there was one um, prominent writer, the prominent writer, so when you name a prominent Who writer, it's the one who everyone's used to saying, who apparently was saying there had been a large fine. Right. So, do you see what I mean? If he got the wrong end of the stick, or whoever whoever misheard this this list in the incorrect context... If, I've got a perfect analogy for that. If right, I might too. Yeah, I was going to say my analogy for that is if if Phil Morris says to person A, uh, "I'm on the hunt for Doctor Who, and you know there are ninety episodes I think I can find," and then Phil Morris turns and says to person B, you know, without person A being present, "I found some Doctor Who." If then, with Phil Morris not being present, person B says to person A, Phil Morris has been looking for Doctor Who and he's found what he's looking for, i.e. meaning some Doctor Who, person A is going to take he's found what he's looking for as confirmation that those 90 episodes have turned up and Phil Morris has got them. That's my analogy. Just a, It's an, a very simple analogy, but just mm. shows how easily a misunderstanding about numbers can come about. Stephen, yeah. your analogy. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, I had one too. It's it. You, you know, <laughs> let's say someone came up to a prominent writer. Oh, let's call him Chris Boucher, just to name <laughs> classic <laughs> Doctor Who writers, just so we don't name real ones to to start rumors. Then let's say uh, some person comes up to Chris Boucher at the screening and says, "Hey, have you heard?" Um, uh, somebody as uh, this guy here has apparently found ninety Doctor Who episodes. Chris Boucher. Stands up, reacts. Ninety Doctor Who episodes, really, um, in disbelief. However, people who are hanging around such events, they don't. They like to hear what the people who are famous in their world, like the Chris Bouchers of the world, mm. want to hear about. So they're kind of they have kind of their ear attuned to what they're going to say, and they don't necessarily hear what's being asked of them. They hear what they're saying, and if. Chris Boucher says 90 Doctor Who episodes, really. Oh my god, Chris Boucher just said there's 90 Doctor Who episodes that have been found. You know, (laughs) it could be as simple as that as well. And you know what did happen? What did actually happen is the whole of fandom was saying, this guy's supposed to have found 98 episodes of Missing Doctor Who. That is the most stupid, ridiculous thing I've ever... (laughs) Oh, hang on a second. Web of fear. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Uh, isn't that that just the problem? I mean... if if at some point uh, the BBC were told um, we have the final resting places of ninety Doctor Who episodes, and by the way, here's nine. Yeah, that is very very quickly transformed into um, well, they think they know where they can get ninety, but here are the first nine sort of thing. You yes, know what I mean? yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so easy for the first nine to become synonymous with, well, the rest of them must be on their way. When, sure. of course, <laughs> the truth is, you know. All oh, right, uh, Stephen, we were going to ask you about what you think of the Source Kings and, you know, their, 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 um, 
<laughs> whether they have any validation, I guess. Or, or rather, Stephen, as, oh, go well, on, yeah. as well, Stephen, as you've not been paying attention to the forums, have these figures impacted your understanding of what may or may not have been happening along the way? Oh, that's a better question. So much for you cancelling, Tim. You're taking over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, OK. <laughs> go on then, Stephen. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> not a word actually i've never really taken anything from because you know i'm sure that other people who sort of uh um you know what's the word i'm looking for not posted on forums but kept a watchful eye on them lurked lurkers yeah, yeah such yeah. as myself probably felt at the beginning that well i have my own bona fide sources on this so i don't need to wade into this forum stuff and let's just see what they're saying to see how close they are to the real thing and so i kind of had that a little bit at the beginning um, because, you know, I, 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 you know, and as the time went along, I mean, I was, I'm in, in my position as the guy on Radio Free Scarrow, I can talk to some people like, you know, like a Steve Roberts to ask him what's up, what's going on with this. And he'll tell me point blank and, and I'll believe him because he's a believable guy. And so I don't necessarily need to say, oh, let's see what this person with a strange, uh, moniker and Gallifrey base is, uh, you know, his, his, uh, his, his, Profile pick is that guy from Evil of the Daleks. It must mean he knows something about Evil of the Daleks. I don't need to really, you know, to go back on that information. I don't know where it's coming from in the first place. So I just, I sort of immediately distrusted it from the beginning. So when you're talking about forums, I say that's great. I don't think the answer will be coming, nor has ever been uh, arrived at on Doctor Who forums, I regret to say. Right, we have got a lot to talk about, so I'm going to shoot through a few quite quickly. Um, I'm going to take yeah. this first one, then I'm going to throw a couple out to either of you. Jim Cameron says, If Phil Morris does have a significant number of episodes, but can't do a bulk deal with the BBC in the way you discussed last time, do you think he might cut his losses and sell them on to individuals who could then do their own deals with or loans to the BBC, as has happened before? And I would say... Having spoken to Phil in person, and he has impressed this upon me a number of times since in private messages, and I don't feel remotely dirty about revealing this, even though it was in private messages, no chance whatsoever that if Phil finds stuff, particularly Doctor Who, but anything that belongs to the BBC, that is not where it will end up in the end. Anything that's from the BBC will go back to the BBC. And if it's a case of just organising the finer details of a deal in order to make it happen, then the finer details of the deal is what is being organised rather than any chance that he may sell them on to anyone else afterwards. The one thing I would add to that, the caveat, is what Tim brought up last time. If the deal that he makes with the BBC isn't especially a good one for him. What might happen is that he gives the episodes back to the BBC, they make their copies, and then they give the actual cans back to him that he can then sell on to individuals, which might not make as much for him as if those episodes were still missing, but will still make him enough money to make it worth his while doing it. Tim. Yeah. They're uh, out there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Tim. No, I, I agree completely. I think he'll, he, he will return whatever is, is missing to uh, yeah, he's... the original broadcaster, and I think he's perfectly within his rights and probably will and would sell anything that he can privately. Yeah. I mean, he's made that very clear from the start, that he's doing this for the right reasons, whatever people might think about him now. Okay, let's shove one out there. Um, 
Okay, Stephen, here's one for you. It's perhaps not going to be quite as quick a one as that one was, but nevertheless, let's give it a go. The possible existence of a second restoration team who have been beavering away, restoring Marco Polo and the Massacre and the Macro Terror and whatever else. And this is why people like Steve Roberts and Peter Crocker are still saying nothing's been handed back because somebody else is doing it. What do you think? I don't think so. I, I think um, they've been the reliable pair of hands for the last 20. I mean, you know, there aren't that many restoration experts out there uh, with a lot of experience. Um, so why would you go to someone completely new with more or less untested results uh, as opposed to going to the ones who you know care about the show, uh, the history of it, the ones who started the whole restoration of, of classic Doctor Who in the first place? I think it's just, you know... It doesn't make any sense. I, you know, there's no, there's no point to shut, uh, shutting. It's not like, like the restoration team is like demanding more money to be to work on these or anything like that. They worked for free for the for most of the years, uh, the beginning of the the DVD range for the most part. I think. Uh, um, uh, so no, I don't put any paid in that. I'm afraid. Tim, anything to add? It was quite interesting on the second Steve Roberts interview that Stephen did for RFS. Um, I think Steve was a little bit less... He, well, he came across to me as a little bit less certain that they would be the only people who might be contacted. But I don't know whether that's just because he was fed up with the whole Omni-Rumor thing. Yeah. It did seem a little bit less certain. I can't remember the exact um, the, the exact quotes, excuse me. <clears throat> but he did seem he did seem less confident than that. I'll I, I tell you one thing, though. Even if the BBC were to get somebody else involved... I think they'd it, they'd get somebody else involved as well, rather yeah. than completely instead yeah. of. I think the restoration team would still know what was going on. I don't think any of this stuff would happen. You know, I don't think any of this stuff would happen without anybody in the restoration team having any kind of wind of it. No, yeah. indeed not. You make, you make, yeah, you make a good point. Actually, I, I, I should amend that, and that we talked earlier about the 10,000 hours of, of, you know, archive material that's going, or BBC material that's going on the BBC store. There's a lot of archive stuff that has not been released. You know, it's it was never missing, but it just hasn't come out in any form. That, in some way, has to sort of be digitized as well. Um, and a certain amount of actual restoration will probably need to take place just to make sure it's of a standard. Yeah. Yeah. So you know what? Maybe I mean I, I don't think there. If if there is an additional restoration team, it's not an addition. You know, it's not like. They've gotten the exact sort of duple. Okay, you be Steve Roberts and you be Mark Ayres and you be Peter Crocker, that sort of thing. I yeah, think yeah. there might be more people that are working on it. I don't think they would have been necessarily frozen out, but they might, the BBC themselves might be working on classics, you know, archive stuff in general, not just Doctor don't they Who. Just, don't they just contact Steve Roberts and he, he gets the A-team back together, you know, breaks Howling Mad Murdock out of the asylum and yeah. so on. Isn't that how it works? I, th- I think if you if you read the forums, yes, it does. <laughs> right. Okay. I, it is interesting that on iPlayer for the um, for the centenary of the Great War, they 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 dusted off some old films of veterans being um, interviewed in the nineteen early nineteen sixties, I think, and they were held in Perryvale, but they were shipped out to a, a restoration house in Covent Garden, and it wasn't you know it wasn't uh, uh, they didn't digitize them and retouch them and, and make them all good but the bbc does use externals to do it 
having said that, I don't think that would be the case with Doctor Who. But it, it, there is precedent for it happening. Okay, Tim, here's one that came up on the forums, and yeah, I'm not disinclined to believe this, but Foley Street. Perhaps explain for people listening who are not on the forums what Foley Street means, and then we'll discuss whether we think it's, it's plausible, shall we say. Um, well, the, the, it's very straightforward in that a, a chap said he was with a, a friend who works um, in Worldwide at Foley Street or an associated office, and he was walking along a corridor and Phil Morris walked past. <laughs> and the reason and then, this became a hot potato was yeah. that because the Worldwide offices, well, Foley, the office in Foley Street, full stop, the address, was closed yeah. a fortnight later, three weeks later, for renovations. Yeah. And there uh, were weeks of debate about it. <laughs> about whether it could even possibly have happened. Until yeah. at the end, you know, it became clear that it was not impossible. It yeah. could have happened. Do we think it's plausible that Phil Morris would is still talking to BBC Worldwide? Yeah, why not? I absolutely agree. I think, you know, in all this, people are saying that Phil Morris has gone completely wild and off the cards and has cut loose all the chains and isn't talking to anybody anymore. But, you know, he, I think we said this last time he was on BBC Breakfast a few yeah. months ago. He, whatever we think about the fact that he's apparently not handing things back by being difficult and such like, you know, I think the difficulty's elsewhere, but, it, the thing is, he hasn't stopped talking to the BBC. He's, whatever, you know, whatever bridges he had, he's not burnt all of them, and there are still lines of communication open. Well, you know, um, in that uh, native hue of resolution, resolution uh, kaleidoscope yeah. film, which none of us have seen yet because the DVD still hasn't been released. But so right. I haven't seen the clip, and it may well get um, expunged in the final edit. But Dick Fiddy, um, I think it was Dick Fiddy, apologies if it wasn't, but I think he said that the BBC had arranged to pay to ship back whatever Phil Morris finds. And then That's right, the yeah. will muscle in on that uh, and get back the ITV stuff and whoever. So regardless of whether um, Phil has disagreements on the creative direction of Cardiff, He's still obviously talking to people at the BBC. And like you said at the, the top of the podcast, you know, the BBC is not one amoebic body. Yes. It's, uh, it's got many, many facets. So it's a non-issue for me because we don't know he was there handing over anything. We don't know whether he was there um, getting a tour of the offices because he was passing. We don't know whether he was there to seek more funding. We just don't know. So... Yes, he could have been there. He probably was there because that guy sounds plausible. But yeah, yeah, it's a non-issue, isn't it, really? Okay, Stephen, John Featonby has written and said, In my Panglossian way, I have elected to believe that the missing episodes are out there and will eventually be made available. This is a bit of a side issue, but Stephen, I know this is one that you've got quite strong feelings about. So he says, when this happens, however, will there be a sufficiently big market for physical format DVD releases or will it be digital format only? I would like a full matching set of discs one day, but I am very, very old. <laughs> very, Stephen. Very old. Yeah. Um, no, 
Quite frankly, I I will I would be surprised if uh, if it comes out on DVD later. Um, I it certainly if it ever does come out, it only because of demand of of something that was already downloaded or released as a download, I should say. Yeah, uh, it's not going to come out simultaneously, and I and I don't think it would happen as quickly as you know, Enemy of the World came out in DVD what November twenty fourth or something like that. Um, I don't think it's going to be as quick as all that. I think you'd probably wait a little while longer if it was ever going to come on a DVD. I think that range is kind of close to dying in the in the UK. Um, and I don't think such a thing would be as marketable to be released on on a special DVD here in, in North America like they have done for a couple of the new series stuff. So, um, no, I remember being on a panel um, uh, somewhere. Galley was a galley. That's where it was uh, with Steve Roberts and other people. And and you know they're they were sort of they're hardcore DVD enthusiasts, and so they were still behind the uh, the release of a of a, D, a physical DVD product. And I just don't think it's as interesting to a large portion of the the money paying people who want to have these things they just want to have them they don't necessarily want them a dvd that looks nice on a shelf i will add one thing if the bbc think it's worth their while if they think it's going to make money for them they will yeah. you know if say for example the massacre turns up complete they're going to issue right. it to download first but if there's enough demand for a dvd they will release a dvd as well if, you know, they think it's going to make money. This is the whole issue with the Underwater Menace. I don't think they think it's going to make necessarily very much money, if any at all, because it's only half a story. Regardless of whether one of those episodes is the final Doctor Who episode that's ever been released. You know, if it's not worth their while to release it on DVD, if they think it's not going to make any money, that's the reason for the delay finding a way to make it worth their while where they think they will make the money. Yeah. Tim, your your thoughts on that? I was going to ask both of you, because I don't know the answer. Did, um, did Web of Fear outstrip... Um, uh, did Web of Fear on DVD outstrip iTunes sales, or vice versa? I think it came in... I did see the figures for the iTunes, you know, and I think the DVD came in slightly short of the iTunes. Oh, uh, right. Or... Okay. R- no, prob- probably the final figures, the, we- the the DVD probably did... No, I couldn't even say that. I think it... Okay, <laughs> right, to stop messing around, I think it was more or less... <laughs> more or less somewhere in the same region for both. But right. uh, uh, presumably, um, to an executive who makes the decision, they don't care which ones which. If they can do it easier on on download sales, they'll just do that. Presumably. Well, yeah, it takes a lot more work to get it ready mm. for DVD than it does for iTunes. It's bloody annoying though, because as I look over my shoulder, there is a, a glossy, wonderful, perfect DVD collection of every single <laughs> classic release. Um, Except and, for, uh, in my head, I live in a world where customer loyalty is rewarded, and therefore, if any more is handed over, it will be on uh, DVD. Except for the Underwater Menace, um, but yeah, I, I, I think it will be a shame. I, I, I like having the, the the physical copy, but I'm an old, I'm an old fashioned fart yeah yeah but you know what but i've got on my dvd shelf i printed these off years ago some enterprising fan designed covers in the style mm. of the existing bbc release and i've got mm. them all there for every single missing yeah. episode yeah. i've got recons burned on discs on the i mean i can do the same i'm not going to be that broken up about it 
show. I'd rather watch the episodes. I won't be complaining. How dare you put these things out on digital? Yeah. I've been waiting 50 years for these. I need them in the format I require. No. <laughs> All right, Tim, a quick, well, hopefully a quickish one for you. Um, right. The thing that is known as the Friends of Derek email. In yeah. other words, this email came out, uh, what was it, six months, a year ago? It was probably about six months ago. Uh, yeah, six months ago. Something like that. Yeah. Which purported to be the real explanation for what was happening. And one yeah. of the things, it, and it also purported to have come from Phil Morris's wife, if I remember rightly. It was alluded to briefly on one of the forums. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I kind of missed this because this was while I was away. Um, mm. Basically, did you put any stock in it at all? Or if any, or in any of the things it said? No. All right, that answered that. <laughs> there's, uh, there's not really a lot to say. I mean, the, the route it came to fandom, it, it made about, I don't know, it made about seven, eight different points about... Um, about Various the things, yeah. Actors, actors kicking off about uh, loyalty payments and about this, that, and the other, and it was nonsensical. And then for some reason, um, particular people latched onto one point, that the episodes, all of them, or the, uh, the majority of them, were stuck in Africa, um, and someone had woken up to the value of these episodes or something and were, and were holding them back um, in a malevolent way. And... It just made... I, I could probably talk about it for 10 minutes. I won't. I think it's rubbish. <laughs> okay, here's one that I'm going to take first because I think we disagree with this. Uh, we disagree about this. So I'm going to put my point across first and then, you know, you can come in if you like and tell me I'm talking rubbish. <clears throat> Freedom of Information Act was created in order that things that were in the public interest could be brought into the public eye. Now, the Freedom of Information Act is generally used in order to bring things into the public place that otherwise businesses would be able to tidy away so that nobody would ever know that they had happened, that they existed, whatever. Basically, I suppose the Freedom of Information Act is a response to things like Watergate, to make sure that governments and government departments can't just tidy things under the carpet, that it would be in the public interest that they didn't. The Freedom of Information Act is not there so that people can, you know, write to particular organisations saying, I need to know exactly what your release schedules are for the next two years, what I can expect and when I can expect to be able to buy it. And yet it seems to me that that's what certain individuals are using the Freedom of Information Act for in this case. My point being, if we are to believe that whatever Phil has found or will find will end up back at the BBC, then it will end up in our living rooms at some point in the future. The Freedom of Information Act is not, for me, the proper process by which we find out what those things are. Tim, I have a feeling that you disagree with me on this. Do you? <laughs> oh, did I get I, that I've, wrong? I've got mixed feelings. Um, I think some of the ones that are sent are completely frivolous um, and pointless and waste of time. The BBC can hide behind commercial projects, can't it, as a reason not to talk about anything. So 
I think they're a waste yeah. of time and the BBC will have a department that is there to deal with it. Um, so I, I don't, I, I agree with you in the principle. I think the reality is somewhat more diluted now and I think organizations deal with them. I've had to deal with a couple in my job. They're a pain in the backside, but it's just something we do. Yeah. Um, I think, so the BBC, I mean, there's no point in doing it. I think freedom of information requests to other bodies, um, I think they're frivolous. I th at the same time, you can't really argue against it because it's like a fundamental principle now, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I also think that there is a responsibility of um, the people who respond to the requests to present the information in a responsible way. And there was a there was one incident where somebody sent a, a freedom of information request to a body and. I'm not going to go into detail because I don't want people to go looking it up and dredging it all up again. But I think the 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 response from one person who was involved in that was fair. Yeah, am I being too cryptic? No, no, no. Carry on. That's all right. I think it was fair. Some emails were were shared, weren't they? And one yeah. of them was so clearly identifiable to uh, Phil Morris, where it didn't need to be included at all. Yeah. I, and all they did was redact the name, but didn't didn't change the text, didn't alter it, didn't add context, didn't remove context. I thought that was pretty irresponsible myself. I might get shot down in flames and be told that was the only way it could be done. It's a real mixed bag for me, JR. I think they're frivolous. I wouldn't do it. I don't think it's what the act was there for. But because people can do it and newspapers can do it, I think they're geared up to deal with them anyway. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think it's too far down the track to start to start worrying about whether it's a frivolous use or not, even though they may be. Right. We've still got so much stuff. We could have done, I don't know, we could have done a lot more episodes on this to get through all this stuff. But Kieran Hyman's email's got some interesting points. So we'll go through those, and then we'll get into a couple more specific things before we finish. It says, Hello, JR. I've listened to your latest great discussion on the Blue Box podcast regarding the missing episodes, and I've now got a few questions, if you don't mind. They are as follows. And I think what I'll do is I'll read each question out, and if it's not something we haven't already covered in the last sort of hour or so, we'll get into it. He says, You were saying that this past two years hasn't been a delay, but simply the natural time period it's taken for some stuff to happen. So how long would you expect this period to last? And at what point would you start to think, actually, this is taking too long? Um, well, okay, I'll answer that personally, then I'll put it to you two. I suppose, I mean, this is very complicated stuff. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to put a time limit on it. I suppose if it went another year from now, and it didn't seem like anything was happening, I think by this time next year, I'd start to think, is anything going to happen? But certainly, I never, I think I said this last time, I never expected to hear anything before late 2015, if at all. You know, I think, I've always been thinking, end of 2015, early 2016 might be the first that we'd actually hear anything else. So as far as I'm concerned, we're not even nearly at the point yet where I'd start to wonder. But I suppose if another year goes on from now and there's absolutely no sign of anything happening, that's the point at which I'll start to wonder if it is taking too long. Tim? Uh, <laughs> um, I just think it'll be over when it's over. I think when Phil's 
yeah. finish chasing all the leads, be that in a year or, well, I hope it's obviously as, as soon as possible, but um, there will be a point where he stops focusing on where else to look and starts focusing on what he's got. Or, you know, I, I don't think there's a time limit on it. I think everyone will reach their sort of breaking point with it, as it were. I don't mean breaking point as in losing their temper, but just thinking it was all a load of rubbish. Um, so I, I wouldn't like to put a time limit on it. Stephen, how about you? I I don't think I'd put a time limit on it either. I think I've always sort of had the launch of the BBC store in mind as sort of coinciding as being the preferred format for the BBC to release anything that might come back. Um, and that's coming. That's going to happen. The BBC source, it will happen probably in the next three to four months. So I'm, uh, I don't know if, it, if nothing happens in the first few months of that, then maybe I'm, I'll start to think that nothing, nothing will happen. But, um, I'm, uh, I'm intrigued by, by the launch of the store. Ah, oh, fair enough. Um, <clears throat> uh, Kieran says, if I understand correctly, Paul Venezes is working with Phil Morris on his search. If that's right, how much would Paul know? And would he know what and if episodes have been found? And uh, my response to that would be, I'll ask him if I get the opportunity. Uh, but, you know, uh, speaking personally, I would imagine that Paul's job working with Phil Morris is on pointing him in the right direction of where to find things. But the person whose job it is after that to get those things off Phil and get them ready for release would be someone else. So while I think Paul would have a good idea about what may or may not have been found, I don't think he would necessarily know outright. I don't think that would necessarily come under his purview, as it were. So I think that's one where there's not really a black and white answer. Uh, Stephen, what do you think? Yeah, I think he was. I think he was probably instrumental in in setting up the search. I think uh, what two thousand seven, eight, nine, that sort of thing. But I think as more and more stuff has come back, and I think as the search is sort of finalized, and as Phil has sort of got his own feet under his, you know, under him as as to knowing what to do in this sort of thing. I think. I think this is pure speculation on my part. I think Paul's. Um, involvement might have diminished somewhat. Not to say that it's been frozen out or anything like that. I just think that uh, that that's just outside of his um, his normal talents. Tim, he'll be the first to know, won't he? Um, in the Doctor Who magazine um, interview, good point. The, the celebration yeah. one, he said, "I was the only person outside Phil's family to know that these had been found." And Phil asked me to look at the films to make sure or to see whether there was any urgent treatment needed, preservation, that sort of thing. Um, so he'd be the first to know whether Phil knows what he's found straight away and therefore Paul couldn't know or whether, you know, whether their relationship is like that. I don't know. But he'd be the first to know. Do you know that? Yeah. That brings up a point that covers both of the last two questions to some degree. There's also a case that. You know, this is a small family business and, you know, he will have people who he employs to do particular things, but this will be in the case of contractors almost. You know, he won't have full-time employees doing this, that and the other. He will have people doing jobs for him as and when it becomes necessary. And if secrecy is an issue for whatever reason, whether that be because if certain people 
in the archives or who have episodes in their attics, as I was talking about last time. If those people get to know what the value of these things might be and are in possession of them, it may become a problem. So that's maybe one of the reasons why secrecy is an issue. But another reason, potentially, why we don't know what Phil's got is possibly because he has got a vast amount of stuff sitting somewhere that even he doesn't know necessarily all the things he's got. And when I say vast, that could be a thousand. It could be, you know, the 64,000. It could be whatever number. But, but the point being, if Phil is out there searching, then he's not also at exactly the same time sitting in a warehouse somewhere, going through film cans, making sure they all contain what they say they contain, or going through film cans that don't actually have labels on, because presumably if he has found a lot of stuff, he'll have masses and masses of cans that don't have proper labelling. So I think there's a huge case that even Phil doesn't know precisely what he's got. And it's very easy to say, oh, if he was in an archive in X country and there was some Doctor Who on the shelf, he would log that and he would know what Doctor Who he'd got from that archive. Hmm. Not necessarily, because... What's in the cans isn't necessarily what's always what's on the cans, and what's on the cans might not actually even say what's in the cans. So yeah. it's very easy to be in a position where Phil would be able to say, yes, I have more Doctor Who, but at the same time, I have no idea how much and what. And, yeah. it, and let's bring let's bring established film researcher Paul Vanessis in so he can... You know, because he'll yeah. have experience and know how to touch the films, and I'd sort of like be able to look at them and go, "Okay, this is what it is, or this isn't what it is." But by the or, same, it's very delicate. Don't touch it. You know. But by the same token, people have also said, and this is a very valid point. If that's the case, why doesn't he get a team of people up there to Wigan or wherever, you know, to go through all these cans and to see what's in them? And the answer to that is, you know, if you're going to have fifteen people going through a warehouse in Wigan for three months, you not only have to pay those 15 people wages for those three months, you also have to pay them travel money to get there and get back and go and visit their families. You have to pay their hotels where they're going to be staying. That would be an enormously expensive undertaking if he yep. has any sort of decent amount of film cans sitting somewhere in the first place. It's not something if, you know, if at the end of this he's able to turn around and say, right, now is the time when I hand a load of stuff over to the BBC and they can go through it themselves, you know, whether that's begun to happen now or whether it doesn't begin to happen for another X amount of years, you know, if that bridge happens along, everybody will cross it. But Phil Morris is not going to start spending out extra tens and hundreds of thousands of pounds on doing something like that until or unless it becomes necessary. Yeah, the B, you know the BBC and the or the BB, BFI might have funded his search in Africa and other countries and and continents and places like that, but I don't think they necessarily are funding his you know his monthly storage fee to store them there, nor yeah, yeah. the yeah. cost it takes to actually sif siphon through them. You know, the BFI is a is a charitable organization. Is that not right, or is it a mixture of charitable and public money? But either way, it doesn't have spare tens and hundreds of thousands of pounds to pay to go through. Phil's back room, you know what I mean? And neither yeah. does the BBC. Um, yeah, Kieran says, assuming Phil has found some episodes, what are the chances we won't ever get to see them? If, for example, Phil sells the prints to collectors or hoarders for greater sums of money than he'd get from the BBC. We've answered that. 
I, you know, it is my firm 100% belief that anything Phil finds that belongs to the BBC will go back to the BBC. You know, assuming yep. it's something that's missing. If it's something they've already got copies of, you know, he's free to sell it on the collector's market at his leisure. Basically. Yeah, and if and and there might be a legal issue there too, and that he can't really, you know, he's not, it's not really his his place to sell something that's BBC material. And also, I don't think Phil has gone halfway across the world to find anything just to sell it at a, at a car boot sale on a Sunday afternoon. Well, exactly. And by posting on the forums that this is what he was going to do, and by posting on Twitter that this is what he's still doing, if he was intending to turn around and flog them to collectors on the black market, he's going about staying invisible a very strange <laughs> way, isn't he? Yeah. You know, it's just... This is a thought that a lot of people have obviously had, but if you actually stop to think about it, it's it's quite a ridiculous assumption to make. He says, uh, you mentioned Phil looking for episodes in other areas like attics in private hands, so is he likely to find any of the Daleks' master plan? Additionally, what stories do you think he is likely to have found? You know, I think Daleks' master plan is covered by what we said about power and evil of the Daleks earlier. And as for what he's likely to have found, I think that we're going to cover that in a few seconds. So, finally, Kieran says, when's your next Missing Episode podcast? Thanks again for interesting <laughs> talks, and I would be happy if they were to have gone on for many hours more. Kieran, wow. in answer to that, you're listening to it. <laughs> and it's gone on for many hours more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and look, on the case of things that might be most likely to turn up, the most obvious one, and one that we do have to get into to some degree, is Marco Polo. Are we going to have a volunteer to start this, or am I going to have to start this myself? Are either of you too fancy I'll, it? I'll do it, just because on, uh, it, it was Steve Roberts who, who said on RFS back in 2014 um, that he 100% thinks that Marco Polo has been found. And he's basing that on two things. Um, that just the factual evidence of how many film copies there were and how many were distributed to many different countries up until 1972. And also just from the hints that Phil Morris has been dropping. Uh, that's what he's going on. He actually explained that on the show. There's no anything like that. I think he even mentioned Power of the Daleks as well as being something just based on hints that Phil Morris is saying. Not mentioning any, you know, how many copies of that were sort of found around. So that's just what Steve Roberts has to say based on his first-hand dealings with Phil Morris, who has not necessarily been telling him anything uh, in the way of details whatsoever. But uh, if you can trust Steve Morris, like uh, Steve Morris, Steve Roberts like, like I do, like a lot of people do, then I think it's uh, that is an opinion that's worth mentioning, which is why I've done it now. Do you think then, before I ask Tim, do you think then, right. A, that Steve Morris... Steve, I've done it again now, you've started something. Yeah, I know. That, that Steve Roberts would be able to read Phil Morris enough to know whether to trust the hints that he's dropping, and that Phil Morris, therefore wouldn't be likely to drop hints unless he was able to, at some subsequent point, back those hints up. The latter. I think I think that he's dropping something that... Because he knows that he's going to be delivering these things. You know, he's working directly with Steve Roberts. And, well, not necessarily directly with, because he never actually handed anything off to, to Steve or, or anyone else. He handed them to Paul, and Paul delivered them to the restoration team. But I don't. Th I think that 
I think that both those guys know that neither will take any crap or neither is easily hoodwinked right. by by things, you know, that uh, that it's, you know, to sort of boast around about what you might have found, it would just fall on deaf ears with Steve Roberts and, and vice versa. I think they're I think it's we're lucky in that we have people involved in this situation who are sometimes just very straight down the line, don't take any crap. We're just we're gonna tell it like it is, that sort of thing, because otherwise there might be there might be a uh, room for for confusion. Okay. Now's the difficult bit. Tim, I'm throwing this in your direction because once again you're the newbie and the easiest to say. <laughs> well, what, what do you want to know, Joe? Okay, if Marco Polo was so heavily rumoured, along with, yeah. and I suppose we can cover the Web of Fear Part Three in this as well. Mm. If Marco Polo and the Web of Fear Part Three were as heavily rumoured as they were back in the yeah. early part of 2013, and considering that nine of those 17 rumoured episodes were the ones that were ultimately um, announced in October, then what happened to Marco Polo and the Web of Fear Part Three? D- were they were they actually ever a part of that deal? And d- is there some mystery? Uh, is there some explanation that might possibly be valid to explain why they didn't turn up? Okay, you know, without sort of dishing dirties on people that we may have made assumptions about or whatever. <laughs> Is you, yeah. Do you think something suspicious happened, or do you think that actually the rumour only got it partly right? Well, how could it only be partly right? You know what I mean? I, I don't I don't see that someone would invent a arbitrary seven-episode story to put onto that when they've already got gold. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's probably something along the lines of um i believe it's been found i think i think it, it it's it's probably somewhere um under phil morris's care um i think I, it must have been mentioned in negotiations it was certainly everywhere um i think there was an expectation in very high echelons that it would be um it would be handed over at some point i don't know what point that was he might have said to the BBC or to whoever, look, I've got these nine. I can get these to you by such a date. When do you want the next seven? I, I don't know. I believe it's been found. It's very hard to come up with a, a a reason of knowing why it's not been handed found without more hard data. But I just think it was so... It, it, it was just everywhere, wasn't it? it? It was everywhere. I think everyone up and down the ladder expected it to have been handed over at some point, and it hasn't. There's I don't a, know why. Yeah. There's a case, going back to what I said, a, uh, you know, an hour ago maybe, about, um, you know, if you tell the left hand one thing and the right hand something else, and then the left hand and the right hand start talking to each other, you know, without your knowledge so that you can't correct them, sometimes they will misconstrue what you've said and come up with a third response. And I think partly you've covered that in that maybe at some point during the negotiations, Phil Morris suggested that Marco Polo may join the enemy of the world in the web of fear. And, you know, somehow it turned around that, you know, either because the BBC finalized negotiations on enemy and web and never finalized the negotiations on Marco Polo. And so it may be the case, for example, if, like I said, enemy and web were in Nigeria up until shortly before um, they were handed over to the restoration team, to my belief, if it's the case that Marco Polo was also somewhere in Africa and 
you know, potentially still is somewhere in Africa or wherever. And that he said, right, you can have these episodes that I've got in Nigeria as soon as I can get them back from Nigeria. And Marco Polo that's in, you know, Timbuktu, you know, if I can get it out of Timbuktu and over to you, you can have that one as well. And then maybe he got to Timbuktu and found it was less easier to get Marco Polo out because he still hadn't got that, as I was talking about last time, final yes on Marco Polo. I'm not suggesting that's the answer. I'm saying potentially it's something as simple but complicated as that and that maybe even Phil himself might have thought he would be able to get the Marco Polo two years ago and might still not be able to get Marco Polo to them now. Or well, How about this for a potential explanation from Phil's point of view? Hmm. When he was anonymous... He could have handed over anything. He yeah. could have handed over enemy of the world, Webber Marco Polo. But as the rumours sort of uh, got out about him, and I think we probably all agreed he didn't want to be known. Uh, no, no, absolutely. He could, he could, they could have announced Marco Polo as an individual find somewhere, private collector or whatever. But if it's been found somewhere yeah. where he's still, um, dealing with them or it was found with other episodes which he, which the BBC or Phil might not be ready to release then the reaction from um, the forums after Bleeding Cool um, and Ian Levine, I'm not blaming them I'm just saying what happened Yes. Um, maybe that would prevent him from or the BBC from saying it's actually not really a sensible thing to get this out now because this work still needs to be done. That's probably the kindest sort of interpretation most plausible I could come out with. And basically, going back to, um, I think it was Mark from 42's question about Bleeding Cool, and we said last week, but I don't think we got into it in too much detail, was Bleeding Cool bad for the operation? And Phil said he didn't want his name out at that time. You know, it's my understanding that he didn't want his name associated with that October announcement at mm. all. He wanted that announcement to go ahead under some cover story that those episodes had come from a private collector so that he could carry on with doing the job. Because, you know, he, he, people say, oh, that's ridiculous, because he's already been on that commentary for the Reign of Terror. But nobody said that Phil Morris was, in fact, Terry Burnett, who handed back the Underwater Menace uh, Part 2 and Airlock from Galaxy 4. So a story could have gone out. And with a made-up name on it, perhaps, that Mark, that Web of Fear and Enemy of the World had been found from a private collector. And Phil Morris could have carried on doing what he was doing anonymously. And yes, you make a brilliant point there. Suppose, you know, he gave the Web of Fear and the Enemy of the World back from Nigeria, directly from Nigeria, as soon as he had got a final yes from the people running the archives there that he could have them and give them back. Say he didn't have that final yes from the people who were in Timbuktu, where Marco yeah. Polo was, quite yet. Or say, for example, and this has been something that's been rumoured, Marco Polo was within in Australia with some private collector. And mm. Phil Morris is 99% of the way there to making a deal with this private collector to get Marco Polo back. And then bleeding cools splash all over the internet that Phil Morris, although they don't name him, they said enough about him for people to be able to work out exactly who was being talked about, is out there making money from the BBC off the back of these Doctor Who episodes that he's found. 
The private collector runs for the hills and says, no, you can't have it. Or the people in charge of the archive say, well, hang on, we're not giving it to you for free anymore. We want X amount of money for it. Potentially, something like that could be what happened to Marco Polo. And so potentially, yes, Bleeding Cool could be responsible directly almost for the delay mm. to Marco Polo. Same, of course, goes for the Web of Fear Part 3. If you didn't find Web of Fear Part 3 in Nigeria with the others, it's still possible he found it somewhere else and was intending to give it back with the rest of that story. And something like along the lines of what I've just said may have happened to prevent that too. There's a there's a there's a, a good case in point actually when you when you um, if you read back on the missing episodes forum to when uh, the sky at night episode man bases on the moon was found yeah I think um, everyone was preempted by Sir Patrick Moore who I think he, he he commented about it didn't he yeah and and Paul had to go on there and say no no well yes we found it it was it was found by a private collector or it was found it was handed over by a private collector yeah and then either that evening or the next day the BBC news or whichever BBC culture show announced it said it was found in an African archive oh yes it's kind <laughs> of made an absolute mess of that yeah so that's a that that shows you know like you've said a few times this podcast, you know, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing sort of thing. Not only does the left hand not know what the right hand's doing, but that can be dangerous. And although there are some people on the forums who are saying, oh, you're being ridiculously overdramatic about that. No, it's not necessarily something dramatic. It it can be a simple thing that just nixes a negotiation somewhere along the lines and sets it back for however many months or years. Because if it's you know, to give a stupid figure, if if Phil Morris had given some archive in Timbuktu a 20 quid backhander to take Marco Polo out and bring it home, and just before they handed over it to him, Bleeding Cool had come out and given them the impression that it was worth more like 20 grand, grand than 20 quid, you know, the negotiation for wherever it is between 20 quid and 20 grand is probably going to take quite some deal of time before Phil actually gets Marco Polo. I believe he's the kind of person who will stick with that negotiation till it's done, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's got all the time in the world to sit there talking with these people while he has, you know, probably something like three dozen different negotiations going on with three dozen different other people about three dozen different other stories or episodes all at the same time. He can't be everywhere at once, and, you know, in large part, not being everywhere at once has got to be the one of the reasons why this has taken as long as it is. Mm. Stephen, I've not heard from you for a while, but what do you think of that? Um, I'm just, I'm just sort of going through thinking of what, like when and why, what episodes and what stories came back. And it's, you know, the, the web and enemy were, you know, when you look at the, the, the root of things, it was kind of almost, you know, you could, you could expect it almost to show up where it did because that was the same station that showed those two stories and two others in like 1974 and 75. Yeah. Um, but, and so when, you know, one wonders, well, where are the rest of the episodes that were with it? And, uh, and, uh, and if they have indeed found Marco Polo, it would have been nowhere near there. So what else, where was it found if it was found and what else was found with it? You know, those are things that are, mm -hmm. that are intriguing to me. It's a, um, I'm also like speculating. This isn't necessarily on the same point that we were talking about, but I'm just thinking about speculations as to, as to where things could have been found and what might have been found. But it's, it's, 
quite obvious, I think, just by watching the 2012 Christmas special that Cardiff um, knew that something was up because there are many yeah, direct yeah. references to the Web of Fear in uh, in the Snowman, the 2012 Christmas special. And I'm just wondering to, you know, let, let's say the BBC wanted to have a complete story, you know, a brand new whole complete story um, come out for the 50th anniversary. And they thought, well, hey, we heard we got Web of Fear. Oh, well, we don't have Episode 3, actually, so it's not actually fully complete. Well, how about we also put out Enemy of the World, the story that actually leads into it? Because that's when when been found, too. And it sort of, you know, it makes me think that maybe there were, you know, there there were enough <laughs> episodes found that they could just willy-nilly sort of go, well, maybe I'll, maybe we'll put this into the pond as well. And, and so, I you know, it's, it's little things like that. It kind of makes me think that maybe Web Part 3 isn't around and just hasn't been found um but that other stuff has if if you can just sort of like you know just offer up enemy of the world as part of the package that gets found it just seems a remarkable coincidence yeah right guys i think we've run out of time so anything else sharak jizz is gonna have to wait for next week i think Okay, but he won't mind. He won't um, mind. Can I also say I've said this before? On, yeah, I think yeah. uh, what they mentioned, Dalek's master plan. I, I, pure speculation. Just because let's end it on pure speculation. Why not? Uh, uh, Dalek's master plan, which I, I think personally still exists in Australia somewhere, just because it was bought by Australia but never aired because of censor rights, and. They kept all the uh, the censor footage that they cut of all the other episodes because it was like basically legally uh, they were legally obliged to or something like that. I'm not sure yeah, the parameters yeah. of it. I still think Dalek's Master Plan is in there. I also think that where while they didn't get um, episode seven, I, I've said this before on a podcast, I'm sure, but uh, but in, on December fifteenth, nineteen sixty six, I believe it was, the order was called down to make entirely new film copies of all episodes up to date at that point that had aired and I don't think that any one would have says oh no we can't do the film copy of uh, Feast of Stephen let's put that one away I think they made a film copy of Feast of Stephen as well I don't think that ever left the UK and it might have been destroyed by now but I, I there's been claims saying that there was never a film copy of, uh, of Feast of Stephen made I think it's out there somewhere in some British attic where no one knows how valuable <laughs> that episode is <laughs> And that's Stephen's little Christmas present to the listeners at the end there. Yep. Look, guys, thanks again for joining me. Still so much stuff we could have talked about. We could have done an entire episode on where we think things might have ended up. And maybe at some point in the future we will do an entire episode on where we think things may have ended up. But not this week. We've run out of time. I will say one thing. Regardless of whether Phil Morris has found or does find anything else, you know, his legacy will be the web of fear and the enemy of the world, and we can never forget that. And a, and going all around the world to either find or or at least look for all these all these things. I think after Phil Morris is done, I think um we can be pretty assured that there'd be nothing left out there to find. Mm. Yeah, well, I was, I, when I was reading the MEF uh, Missing Episodes Forum search threads in 2009-2010, I was genuinely thinking, well, they're not going to find anything, but that's a result anyway. At least we know stuff isn't there. And hey, uh, he's got at least nine. I think he's got a few more. 
you know, I, it, I think it's great. I think it's great all round. Brilliant. Right. Well, in that case, until next week, when the Fantastic Four, because I do believe all four of the regular blue boxers will be back next week to do another box outside bar episode. But until then, I was JR. I was Stephen. I was Tim. And we'll speak again soon.